Good evening, good to see everybody. So tonight I'm going to um, talk about uh, a big topic here is the mind. So what are we talking about when we say mind? And oftentimes, me and Eileen, at the beginning of these groups that we meet with you at, we say, we, we do the groups so that mostly they'll be helpful. What we don't say is it's really actually mostly for us and helpful for us to figure out what to talk about in the evening. <laughs> and also, it's, uh, we, we usually, and this, this time we've stuck to it pretty much, usually we map out the retreats in advance, like what we're gonna do in the morning, what we're gonna do in the afternoon, and, and sometimes it changes a lot. Mostly this one hasn't changed, a little bit. Um, so um, where to begin? So to just kind of give the lay of the land and just kind of clear up some terms. Um, I know that sometimes I, I, I'm, I talk fast and quick if you haven't gathered. And sometimes I might use these poly terms, which are the terms of the, of the ancient language in a way that's too fast. and. So I'll try to be a little bit more careful about that. That's a, um, I think it's important. Maybe it's a more important. Maybe I think it's more important than it actually is. So this word mind is definitely important. Uh, it comes from the word. The word for mind in the early discourses is this word chitta. And chitta is a word that is a really important word. It's, it's very rich. All Buddhist traditions use this word chitta. And then they use the word bodhicitta. Uh, and so it means, it means something a lot more than the way we use the word mind. So chitta would mean mind, it would mean also body, and, and really more importantly, heart or emotion, but, but a heartfulness. And so when we use the word mind or the word psychology, we use the word psychology a lot of times when we talk about the mind, which has a lot of benefits. But the mind in the last 100, maybe 150 years, really from the time of William James, has undergone a kind of radical psychologization. So when we, when we think about the mind and we speak about the mind, we're usually just kind of pointing to what's going on in the psychological, which is helpful. And that's kind of what we've been doing today, looking at that a little bit. But I want to kind of give us this more dynamic sense of what we're experiencing. So what you're experiencing moment by moment is actually chitta. So I want to talk about that from a number of ways and really want to talk about it as, as an internal voice, um, which I think is really important. I think it's a very undervalued and undertaught idea in uh, the Buddhist teachings. Eileen pointed to it the other night. Of course, you know that we see in the Eightfold Path, there's a teaching on what's called right speech, which um, kind of always makes me feel uh, I'm not very good about adhering to authority. Uh, and uh, when I hear right speech, I feel like here come the Buddhists to tell me the rules about how I'm supposed to talk. And that's not going to go down well. Right? And I would say that, generally speaking, I uh, probably would not receive a trophy for my lifelong commitment to right speech. Right? So I think that we want to change the language on that a little bit. And I think the word that I would use more would be the word voice, which is actually a more accurate word. This word vacha is the, is the word that comes from vacha. It means actually voice. Right? And so have you noticed when you close your eyes, there seems to be an internal voice? Just, just talking going on? Noble silence my ass. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
Have you had any much? <laughs> Just jabbering away back there. With all kinds of unhelpful suggestions. Pointing out things. So I think really, I would probably translate that in a more uh, user-friendly way, in a really actually a more embodied way as, as what is an authentic voice? How do we find an authentic voice? An internal voice that we can, that we can actually find, uh, that we can actually put voice to certain parts of our experience, uh, and that we can express. And I think this is really, for me, honestly, probably the most transformative practice. Because that's how we, the primary mechanism that we use to relate to other people, obviously, is voice and language. And language totally matters. And so I think that one of the reasons why I think the noting practice is so valuable is that we really, as much as we think we know language and we use words all the time, we we use them so automatically and so reactively that a lot of times we're just like, I find myself doing this just talking fast and just words are just falling out of my mouth and I'm mostly making sense and I almost don't even know, like, I don't even feel like I'm talking. Like, I'm just, like, thinking out of my mouth. Right? Which is, I think, how most people talk. So there's not a lot of intentionality, there's not a lot of reflection. Uh, and then if you add this to it, it's a whole other thing. So again, just backing up a little bit, what, what, what the mind kind of is, I'll use the word mind instead of the word shitta for y'all, um, is streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Right? So, we have, so we have these six senses, right? We have all of these, these experiences are coming and going and they're, they're actually interacting with each other. And so to make me make that a little bit more simple to understand, the mind is not a thing that exists but it's an event that occurs, right? So it's, it's very plastic, it's very malleable. Um, it's also, the other thing that's interesting is it's really fast. Uh, in fact, the Buddha who's really keen on making analogies actually says in some of the early discourses that he doesn't make an analogy for how fast the mind moves because he can't point to anything in the natural world that moves that fast. He's like, I make no analogy, no comparison, for how rapid this chitta goes because there's nothing that goes that fast. And so we end up with this word, uh, kapichitta, monkey mind. You've probably heard monkey mind. He's like, that's the best I can do. But it's like a monkey on like methamphetamine. You know? Who's just like, you know. And that's, and that's just kind of the natural way the mind works. It's, it's very natural. So I think we have to understand that mind, consciousness, is just a feature of our organism. And so this is why the Buddha is so clear on mental development. He's like, yeah, you have this mind. This, this thing is all over the place. It's moving very, very fast. It's been conditioned by the world, by your parents. By the time you finally sit down and take a look at this thing, you've got a couple of decades of really bad behavior under your belt that was given to you by your parents and by the world and by friends and by society, that, of course, how could we expect to come into a room like this and 20 minutes into it just be calm and 
ease for like we think that, but like that's not that's very unrealistic. Right? You guys are actually pretty much at this point at more or less the three days deep. So from here on out, you actually have a bit of a fighting chance. Right? You've worked your ass up, ass off to get up to this point, right? And if you notice, there's a little bit of a calming down, a little bit of a contentment, a little bit of a... And it just takes a while to do that. So again, the mind is not a thing that exists, but an event that occurs. And so when we practice the Dharma, some people talk about it as being this sacred mystery of awareness, right? which has just been going on for years. Like this, the fact that we are aware, that we think, that we have consciousness, this, this whole thing, actually, if we really, really think about it, is really fascinating. It's really wild, you know? And we, we totally take it for granted. The one person who does a really good job of pointing this out, and I like him because he's not really known for his Buddhist thought, is John Kabat-Zinn. If you've ever seen him talk a lecture, he's like, he's like, he's like we should be fascinated, completely and totally fascinated, 100% of the time that we're even here at all, and that any of this is happening. Right. And we get hits of that. But mostly we feel inconvenienced, we feel rushed, we feel impatient, we, 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 we kind of feel, we, we fight, we struggle, we conflict, we react uh, with the mind experience. And we think we're doing that with the world, but actually we're doing it in here. And, and so to develop, that's why we, we started the beginning of this progress of insight, is really to, of course, purify, transform our behavior, and really trying to develop the mind, so we've just been developing the mind by just being with it. The generosity, the awareness, the attention that you've been given to this really, really mostly, whether you realize it or not, you think, oh, my mind's all over the place and all that stuff, that's all fine and good, but nobody could argue, you guys have mostly been with your mind for you know, 72 hours. And if you might notice, it's getting a little better in there. See, a little bit better in here. And so when we think about the mind, or we could say the chitta, the most primary mechanism that needs to happen is that it really needs and wants to be related to. Right. So in a way, how in practice we can kind of uh, be the subject and the object kind of back and forth. Right. And how can we have a, a collaborative, cooperative, constructive, kind, generous, all these words we use in Buddhism, right? These are, these are the relational qualities the mind really, really wants to be parented, wants to be developed, wants to be met with kindness and compassion and gratitude and generosity and awareness and all these things. Those are all kind of really relational. And so when the mind, uh, when the chitta has that, when the mind feels related to in a way that's skillful, it relaxes, it steadies, it calms down, it feels safe, it feels seen, it feels heard. And so we're, we're, we're being with the experience in that way. And that's also what we would say in science, homeostasis, the mind and body system is at ease. We feel to some degree safe enough to do this. Right? And, we, and we get that. And you know that doesn't come easy. Most mammals on the planet can do that pretty easily. Whales and dolphins, they have no problem with this stuff. But we have this a little bit too much self-awareness. We're just a little bit too aware of the meanness of it all. And so we, we get these layers of reactivity 
the wanting, the not wanting, the liking, the not liking, the past and the regret and the guilt and the future and the fear. And we just really, we're really kind of just stumbling through concepts mostly. I mean, think about all the thoughts and all the things that have happened in this room since you've been here. Where are they now? They're gone. What's changed? Not much. It's, the room's pretty much the same as like, far as I can tell. And so that's why there's so much emphasis on being present and being embodied. You know, we're just, we're just spending a week here together in this room, sitting quietly by ourselves. That's actually what we're doing. Right? Shouldn't be that hard. And I remember when many years ago I was on retreat, one of the first, second retreats I was on, they were doing this kind of practice as a Metta Vipassana retreat, and they were doing these pretty, what I felt were intensive meta sessions in the afternoon, and I really couldn't handle it. It was just, uh, the, I don't even think it was self-hatred. There was just too much of like, I don't just, I don't have this thing that you're talking about. Like, I just don't have it. Like, I didn't, it didn't come with my stuff. <laughs> you know, like, see that kind of feeling? You know, like, and just like, yeah, I got, I totally got like shorthanded. Like, they didn't give me that when they made me. I don't have any kindness in here at all. And I was going to leave a bunch of times. And I, and I said, I, kept, I went to one, I think it was Steve Armstrong at the time. I said, I'm, I think, I think I'm going to go. And he's like, well, why do you want to go? And he, the Dharma teachers are really good at manipulating you into staying on the retreat. <laughs> they usually say, well, why don't you just stay for the Dharma talk? And if you feel like leaving afterwards, you can. So if you hear me say that, be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> And he asked me very point blank, he said, is your mind a friendly companion? No, first of all, I was like, whatever, dude. <laughs> Stupid question. <laughs> and then, and of course, I was like, of course not. And he was like, well, that's really what we're going for here. So then, but that really helped me because then it was like the technique of meditation kind of relaxed. I was like, oh, I don't have to worry about trying to be on the breath or trying to be in the present moment like perfectly. I was trying to get the technique of it just right. And then when I heard that, I was like, oh, I'll just stop that and just see if I can just be okay, be friendly. And it really cooled me down quite a bit. And so when we think about the way that humans think about the world, uh, there's kind of two camps on this. And, and one level, I think it's religion and to some degree science, is very interested in trying to explain the universe and how we got here and very an, a, really a kind of an external wanting to understand what's going on out there, which is, I think, largely what, what has gone down. Uh, the Buddhist system or Buddhist thought is probably one of the only ones until recent psychology that doesn't really care about any of that and is very preoccupied in how it, what's going on in here, right? So what, what is this sacred mystery of awareness? What is this mind? How does it work? Uh, is there anything I can do about it? What can I do about it? What can't I do about it? You know, what, what agency? I love, uh, me and Derek were talking about this earlier, I love the way Eileen talked about the Third Noble Truth as being an opportunity for change or an opportunity for doing something new or an opportunity for agency. So the question is always that question of there's a little bit of agency in every moment and I think we all at times confuse where it is. And of course, we're so, because we're so external focused, our agency is to try to control 
the external demands of our life and get everything at the right appropriate volume so then we can relax. But it'd be probably be better for us to not be so determined and so caught up and so calculated and controlling of the external demands and actually just sit back and try to develop some internal resources. Right. And so that's really the opposite way that most of us grew up, that we thought about the world. So this is a whole new way of thinking about life, the world, the mind experience. And we also have to remember that in ancient India, they didn't have this, their worldview wasn't a worldview like we do in modern society, like the world, which is that which is really out there. And how did it get here and how does it work? They weren't really interested in that. Their thinking was all more about the world is actually created through the mind and we kind of project the world on the screen of experience and what's going on there. Very different way to think about things. Right? So what they're saying is actually the world is created through the mind. So we create this world and we inhabit the world that we created. Right? And that's kind, of, that's kind of more actually feels what's going on here. And it's not to deny or say that there's not an out there. There's definitely an out there. And, and the way that consciousness is described is basically very simple. It's that you have an organ, then there's an object, and then hearing arises. Like Buddhist psychology at its fundamental level is like not complicated at all. It's basically there's an organ, there's an object, and then there's the consciousness of that object. So everything begins phenomenologically. And so you noticed, have you noticed by just actually tuning in to the sensory world, the phenomenological world, the system actually prefers that. Right? The system prefers to be in the natural reality of experience than it does to be in the created world of what you think this actually is. Have you noticed that you're starting to get a little bit of a preference for that? That's why there's all this emphasis now and all the scientific research on how good it is for us to just sit in nature. To just be in nature. I just, and I, I feel very inspired by nature right now. My wife Shannon has been doing this nature gestalt thing in Colorado that's been really fascinating. And I did this Awake in the Wild retreat with Mark Coleman. And it was so great. We didn't, sit, we didn't even sit inside the whole time. He was like, grab your cushion, go sit next to a river, come back in a couple of hours. And I just brought my stuff out just in the middle of the woods, just sitting there for hours, like next to a river in Viacitos, just being like... And part of me was like, me being the kind of, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, unskillful at times person, was like, well, this is just dumb. Just sit here in the woods all day. I want to hear some Dharma teachings. I want to I wanna get to work. I, I got stuff to do. I came to work on some stuff. I was sitting next to this river. You know? A couple of days of that, if I'm honest. I'm like, man, this is not the right retreat. <laughs> this guy is just like phoning it in, go sit by the river. But then what happened after a couple of days, I started to really go like, yeah, sit by the river. <laughs> and it was like, I just, it just happened. I didn't really do anything. I just made myself available. And I think that's really what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to make ourselves available for the life that we're having and the experience that we're having and really coming to terms with the fact of how complicated that is, how hard that is. And so that, that's something that you can develop. That's really a key feature of mental development is to just be here and to, you know, to freely accept which is being offered in this moment, letting that be enough. And of course, you know, 
we grew up in a capitalist society where all we've been told is everything you need is definitely out in the world and you should go get it. So one of the things that I like to think about, one of the things that really put me on this kind of path that I've been on for the last maybe 12 or 15 years of really becoming a bit obsessed with the early teachings. And uh, so some people ask me like, what's your deal anyway? Why are you so obsessed and hunting this down? Why do you care about these languages that nobody speaks anymore? Like it seems kind of frivolous. Uh, and so for me, it's because I started off with a really a deep, deep interest in a big kind of obsession with trying to uncover the, the historic Buddha. Like I would, I would sit on retreats for years and I would, I'd be like, okay, this guy was actually a person. He was a real person. He wasn't a god. He wasn't any of these things. He was like, he's actually a guy. What was his world like? What was his life like? And the stories that I was being told about him uh, were making me upset because they were kind of fantastical. You know, he grew up in this big fancy palace and he, he, he did all these things that just seemed kind of impossible. And when I started to really look at it through like anthropology and through history, like who was this guy really? Uh, to uncover his humanity at the same time, now I know I was kind of uncovering my own humanity in a way. Like actually he was no different than you or I. And when you look at his mind, our mind, it's really like the Dharma system, the thing why I think he's the greatest thinker of all time is that he actually at some point sat down, closed his eyes and looked at this whole thing and figured it out and categorized it and just completely made a whole system for how the thing operates. Nobody's really done that. You know, he didn't have any, he didn't have Google or calculators. He didn't, he couldn't, he didn't even have written language. Right? So something, something fascinating about somebody who, who had the power to observe the mind in a way where he could memorize it, he could classify it, he could put it in all these elaborate lists. Right? It's just like, I really became a sense like, I wonder what that was like. And so when you think about, well, what conditioned him? is if you look back and you see him as a real person who lived you know, at a very interesting time, moving from an agricultural society to commerce, they had enough of abundance, they had enough of crops where you saw the beginning of cities and coin money. It was really the beginning of a whole civilization that he lived in. And so his, his, he, people also have to remember, Eileen pointed this out, and I think this is really important to point out, the Buddha was an indigenous person of color. He was a person of color. He also was, an, he was from an indigenous native culture, meaning his, his family were, uh, they, 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 they were not Hindu. Hinduism was not around at all in the time of the Buddha. They were actually called the Sakyans. They were tribal. And Sakyan means worshiper of the sun. So they, they're, they're kind of religious or they're kind of uh, devotional with, with an acknowledgement of the sun and the beauty of the sun and the power of the sun and that what the sun provided them, life, sustenance, agriculture, warmth. And so he would, he would have been very influenced by the sun and the sun's an interesting thing because it does embody two qualities that are very rich in his teachings. One is warmth, the sun is warmth the warmth of kindness, the warmth of generosity, the warmth of care, of gratitude. So there's, there's, a, there's something about there that's a, a warmth is important, aspect of practice. The other thing that the sun provides is light, illumination, seeing things clearly, 
being able to see things, not just visually, but experientially. So we, he, we oftentimes hear the teaching of the Buddha as the teachings of wisdom and compassion or wisdom and kindness. And the sun kind of encapsulates those two things. He also, of course, would have been very aware of seed and fruit. That was what allowed his community and the world he lived in to thrive, and that's how they survived. They grew crops, they ate the crops, they traded with other things. They were able to have more crops than they needed, which they were able to trade for things. And that was kind of really how things worked. And I think I said this the other night, that he must have at some point assessed that, well, if this is kind of how it works in the natural world, that probably works here. And the word he uses is a word that was not used in the religious system of his time. Two words that he used that were words that were around the time, but they were not associated with any religious or spiritual tradition, namely the Upanishads, the Jains, um, the Brahmins. And the first one is awake. He talks about being awake. When people asked him what was, people would meet him and say, what, what about this guy? He would always say, I'm I'm awake in the sense of I'm, I'm, I'm actually aware of what's going on here and obviously you're not. And he also <laughs> used this other word, um, bhavana, cultivation, which is actually a really good translation. I think we'd be best, I think we'd all be better served if we kind of could get rid of the word meditation and use the word cultivation. It's a much better word. It means something. Right? To cultivate. So we cultivate the mind, we cultivate the heart, and cultivation is about bringing something into being, right? bringing something out. So we, we, he, you know, we, in our system we have all this, again, from a Buddhist perspective, from his perspective, is the mind, you know, he doesn't, it's, it's not this good or evil business that we run into. It's kind of an ethically neutral system. And what we become and how we live and whether we're happy or whether we suffer depends on what kind of things internally are being cultivated. Are we cultivating jealousy and envy and avarice and greed? Or are we cultivating kindness and awareness and generosity? You know, you reap what you sow, right? We hear that phrase from time to time. And so he talks about this word vimuti, which is to be liberation, which I think is, again, sometimes that word feels a little bit too high, like liberation sounds like this epic experience, right? And I don't feel like, uh, so we hear like words like liberation or we hear words like enlightenment, which is a word I think we could do without. Because I think what happens is over time, the Buddhist goal, if you will, like this idea of enlightenment or liberation got put up way too high that most of us look about and go, yeah, I'm never gonna. That's, that's too lofty, but it's really trying to bring it down here. Right? And that's what you're seeing down here is this experience of, of Nibbana or coolness, coolness of mind where, the, where we're just sitting, where we're with our experience moment by moment. There's not a, a lot of reactivity. Yes, we're seeing some wanting and some non-wanting. We're seeing these things, but there's not that. There's just a very ordinariness to it that, you know, takes <laughs> a couple days to get to sometimes. Again, it has to be developed very much about being developed. And so when we think about this word mind, he talks about the, there's two kind of aspects to the mind in which I think language and terms are so important. Is The mind is generative, so the mind can produce ideas, it can produce thoughts, it can produce intentions, it can produce behaviors, and it's also resonant. So I can generate words, I can say words to you, 
and then you can say words back to me and there's a resonant quality. But that also happens internally, right? Have you noticed your mind is generating thoughts and then you kind of feel the effect of that thinking, don't you? You ever just be sitting around thinking about something, thinking about something and you just feel really bad? So that's such a dynamic way to think about the mind. That's a very kind of interesting thing to think about. It's like, okay, I'm generating and I'm actually, I'm the recipient of what's being generated. So we would use the word maybe affect. So thinking has an affect. If feeling is in every moment of consciousness, which which it is, that means every thought that I have in my mind that arises has an affective. I resonate with that in some way. And so that's kind of trippy, I think. That I can, that I, I actually reap the results of my own thinking mind. So if that's true, it's really in my best interest to try to cultivate qualities and not let myself be dragged around by this blind habituation. Which, which from a moment-to-moment practice perspective is really hard to do. To just sit here, be with, you know, be like we're doing, and, 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 and you get dragged away by these habituation behaviors of mind. Right? It's so powerful, it's so fast, it's so quick. But this is where I think the, the key point of this Nibbana, uh, this kind of moment, this experience that the Buddhist, Buddhist always try to point us to, he's like, you have a little bit of agency in every moment, a little bit. And the more awareness you have, the more mindfulness you have, the more, the more you get, the more you can recognize that and ask yourself this basic question, which is kind of the entire definition of the path. Do I want to cultivate this or do I want to abandon this? Right? And it's almost like, almost like there's a moment-moment decision. Right? Do I want to... Do I want to encourage this line of thinking? Do I want to continue to badger this witness? Well, what have you done for me lately? I mean, you brought me on this retreat. You thought it was going to be great. It's actually not that great. It's like we're just constantly badgering the witness of our own mind, you know? And so do you want to keep that going? Do you want to encourage that? Do you want to fuel that? That's that word we usually translate as clinging or grasping, but it's really more fueling. So we're having these destructive thoughts arising in the mind, this blaming, this judging, this bad person, this my bad past, all the bad, 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 bad. And it's like this little fire that we're just hurling gasoline on it. I'm getting really upset that it's getting worse. Right? Because gasoline and water don't look all that different. Right? And, so, and so a lot of times this happens, you know, it's not all our fault. It's not all, like you're, it's not like you're in on the jig. It's not like you're like meaning or intending uh, that, but that's sort of kind of what happens. That's how habituation works. You know? It's like a lot of us, we have these habits of mind that have been running for so long, they're running off the grid. You know what I mean? They're, 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 they're self-generating their own power. They have so much inertia. And so a lot of times what we do here, is like I think about it as like, you, you, know, you ever see those little things that the kids have? They call them fidget spinners. You put them on your finger and you hit them and they spin around and around and around. It's like, and it takes a while. To, the kids usually can't wait till to stop and hit it again. And it's like we have those in our mind. You ever see that narrative running? Like, okay, it's going. It's almost coming to an end. What do you do? You whack it one more time. And... <laughs> it almost comes to an end. Okay, I'm almost done with 
my terrible teenage years and whack it again. <laughs> You're like, damn it. Right? You know, so there's all these kind of, all these dynamic things going on. So the reason why this system of training I think is so good is like with the noting that we did today, it's like we start to see what that is. We really, really, it totally behooves us to have a kind of lexicon, a lexicon for a terminology to describe the cognitive process, which sounds like kind of a fancy way to describe it, but no, it's just this is remembering, this is blaming, this is criticizing, this is judging. You know, to, to really, we, we really, really are well served to have that because that's how we communicate, that's how we understand. Language is so important. It's so important. And so part of, of, of vacha, of finding voice, is the more I am aware of my internal experience, then the more I can sit down and I can kind of express that to another person and they can go, oh, I, I know what you're talking about. I got that too. Right? And this is really interesting because this is how the Dharma came down. The Dharma came down in an oral tradition, one person expressing it to another person. And I think the reason why the chain of events was so strong is somebody would describe something and somebody would sit there and go, oh yeah, yeah, that's totally right. Greed, hatred, and confusion, got it. Yes, I see it. Yeah, you know. And so the reason why they were able to remember it so much is because these people were practicing and they were able to sit down and, and verify, okay, yeah, that checks out. Okay, we got another list. This, this list checks out. This checks out, right, 2,500 years. Like, I wonder what Mahasi Sayadaw would think right now if he, like, could come down and be like, wow, it's 2023, crazy American culture. There's, like, 25 people sitting in a room in California trying my shit out. <laughs> I think he'd be psyched. I think he'd be really pleased. He's like, 25 is not that many. <laughs> you know, the percentages aren't so good. But, uh, you know, it could multiply. So when we think about authentic voice or right speech or whatever, I think we have to really understand that it really actually, the whole thing starts the moment that some kind of thought arises in the mind. That is the beginning. That, that there's, a, there's a voice inside. And so this is why on the first day I really wanted to hammer that down, of trying to find or feel into that like, so trying to get to the bottom, if you will, if that word makes sense. And so what, what sits at the bottom is this like, desire to be free. Or just, just, that, that desire is like, really, really important. And I think desire sometimes gets a bad reputation because we associate desire with craving too much. So I think it's important that we distinguish the difference between those two. And so we probably all would be better served if we could live a little bit more in line with our desires rather than by our kind of cravings. And so I think we, one of the things that's interesting that Buddhist psychology makes a distinction that I think is a good distinction. Most of us would probably assume or think that craving is just desire ratcheted up. Like you ratchet up the desire and it's craving. But actually there, there are two very different kind of functions of mind. And so technically, desire is considered to be an ethically neutral mental factor. 
desire is not good or bad, it's just there. It depends on what it takes on for a root. So a desire that's rooted in hatred, that desire becomes corrupted and it turns into ill will and aversion and pushing away. Or that desire is rooted in greed and having and wanting to get. And I'm willing to step on anybody. I'm willing to do anything to another person. I don't care who it affects. I'm going to get what I want. And I think that's probably a major feature of modern life. People don't care. Greed is like, I'll do it. Whoever's in the way of me getting what I want is going to go down. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Right? And so, how do I say this? So desire is not an exp- craving is not an expression of desire, but craving is actually a repression of our deeper desire to be free. Right? And that's a really important thing. So again, craving is not an expression of our desire, it's a repression of our deeper desire to be free. And what makes everything so hard is the suffering that we get when we have to when we feel as though we're living a life of unfulfilled desire, right? And when I'm feeling the sadness or the disappointment of something that I, that I truly desire for myself, could be a relationship, could be uh, a job, could be a whole bunch of, could be a more comfortable domicile, could be a lot of things that aren't bad or wrong. But what happens is when that becomes too uncomfortable, who shows craving comes to the rescue and says, hey man, Dave, you ain't gotta feel this way. I got all this other shit out here that you can distract yourself with. And really, I think this is really how the whole addiction thing happens, is that being in the discomfort of having unmet desires is too painful for most of us. We'll just watch it, we'll smoke it, we'll eat it, we'll gamble it, we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we would rather do that. But that doesn't go anywhere. See, that's not really cultivation, that's habituation. And then when, that, when, we, when we're done chasing that monkey around, when that falls away, we're just back again to the experience of that unmet desire. Right? So what the Buddha is trying to get us down to in the bottom of is what is that basic desire to be free and how can, I, how can I nurture that? How can I cultivate that? How can I express that? How can I actually put voice to that? What is that trying to say? And a lot of times we don't want to hear We're like, shut up, we don't want to hear it. Because, it's, because me trying to get my desires met uh, and it goes, this goes back to like being in a crib, not getting your needs met, not getting things taken care of. And the one thing the Dharma doesn't do well is, is there's not a good distinction made between need and greed. Eileen mentioned this the other night. A lot of times we go through this. I know I went through this. I don't think there's any way around it, but you can go through this kind of period in Dharma practice where you feel like you shouldn't want anything. And that just the experience of wanting anything at all for any particular reason is somehow craving and leads to suffering and it's bad and wrong and I should just like not even try or want anything at all, which is really a destructive place to be. Talk about getting bit by the Dharma snake. That for me was the most poisonous Dharma snake that I've ever been bit by because now, now I'm just living in a repressed state. So not only am I shutting down the craving, but I'm also shutting down, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm and then that can give into, well, I don't, I don't want anything because even if I get it, I'm going to lose it anyway and it's going to hurt too much. Or I'm not going to get it and I'm going to be disappointed. Or I don't deserve it actually anyway. And I'm actually just kind of a bad, greedy person for actually wanting anything at all. Right? And that, that really is where you fall into this near enemy of equanimity. This 
indifference, there's apathy, there's, why bother anyway? We're all just gonna get sick and grow old and die? What's the fucking point, right? And so that, that's a really repressed kind of experienced state to live in. And that's not what we're doing here at all. Right? So when we, when we really kind of get down into that, this, why this, this, this is why this seal of thing is so important, this kind of basic integrity, this, this well-wishing that we have. We want to live well. And we should want to live well, and we should be able to live well, and we actually should be able to get our needs <coughs> met. Basic, basic needs should be met. Right? That's not that. That's important. That we need that as a human being. And so sometimes, uh, this when Buddhist gets too dogmatic or too religious, it it, it kind of can really turn into a, a repression of a humanity. It's like the story uh, Akinchino Weber talks about. That's quite funny. It's like, you know, like the the story. It's like this old lady like has this cat, right? And so the cat dies, and so she's really sad. She's had this cat for twenty years, and. The cat dies, and she says, she says oh, I'll go, yeah, I'll go talk to the local Buddhist monk, and he'll console me and help me with this cat that died. And she goes to the monk, and she gets dharma explained by the monk. And the monk goes, well, I mean, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, everything dies. You had a cow old with the cat, 20 years old. I mean, you're lucky the cat lived 20 years. That's a long time. She's like, yeah, but I'm really sad that I'm, my cat's gone. He's like, well, you're just clinging. You're clinging to the cat. Stop clinging to the cat, get rid of the clinging, get rid of the suffering, no problem, right? Not really, it's not really helpful because there's a kind of need, there's a, there's a caring, there's something that's actually not being not acknowledged. And so when we don't make a good distinction between need and greed, this is when the Dharma snake really starts to bite. Right? We start to deny or think we don't deserve or don't want or really shouldn't want. Right? And I went through all this stuff in my 30s. Like I, I, I'll spare you the gory details, but I really, this is what drove me to a quest to understand the historic Buddha because I was, you know, I was in teacher training, I was working in, in kind of the against the three methodology, which turned out to be actually quite dogmatic uh, and was really kind of uh, trying to do it correctly and, and just like, and I was, wasn't really very happy. And so I, I, I actually was able to develop, and this is really destructive, and I don't suggest you do it, and you should be aware of it if you're doing it. You can kind of dharma-splain yourself out of doing the things that you want or deserve or kind of desire. And it just leaves you kind of feeling apathetic and what's the point? And, and, and you get into this thing, which many a famous Buddhist teachers kind of present themselves as, is kind of a really equanimous person. But it's not equanimity, it's that near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference or apathy or cynicism. Where you've adopted a position of like, you know what? Just a kind of coldness. So this is why the metta and equanimity, we'll talk about this later on, is so important, is because you have to have the caring and the non-attachment. If there's too much non-attachment, which is what can happen, too much repression, too much undeserving, too much not putting voice to, expressing, understanding my desires, then it becomes very cold. Right? We don't want to be cold. So we don't, we don't have the warmth, we just have the coolness, and we have too much coolness, now we're cold. And that can be kind of a... And per, people who are cold, they don't react, they're kind of 
So there can be a tendency to be like, oh, wow, they're so peaceful and serene and at ease. And it's like, no, they just don't give a shit. (laughs) And sometimes we can almost want that. You're like, yeah, I just wish I totally didn't give a shit. It would be so convenient to not care about anything. And so uh, we have to understand that there's an ethics of care built into all of this. And caring is risky. Caring is scary. Caring is unreliable. You know? And I think that's what really kind of pushed me into that cold indifference. I was like, I was like, this whole caring about people and caring about myself and trying to uh, put voice to my desires and being judged for them or feeling ashamed for the things that I want or the things that I would like to have happen. Like, that's, that whole thing is just so scary and painful. Actually, I'll just, I'll just sit in the cold. And sometimes that can, you know, we, we, we struggle with that even because sometimes we're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I've been burned too many times. I'm not going to try anymore. And so that's a really easy, Dharma can be, that again, that snake analogy, that's a very common kind of thing to adopt here. So we have to be very careful about that. And so, to just kind of bring this out a bit more, is one of the, one of the teachings, one of the essential teachings of Path Factor, is, 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 is the term technically is Sama, Sankapa. Sankapa usually translated as intention, which is okay. But again, another one of these words, there's no one word. So it's intention, it's inclination, it's imagination, it's creativity. It's, it's, what sits at the bottom of that, what we really want to develop, is a desire for generosity. Because generosity is the generative, expansive part of the heart of the experience that feels good. We're reaching out to other people going, here, here, here. You know? And that is not the movement that we live in. The movement is always kind of this way. I remember doing this years ago. Joseph Goldstein actually did this in a talk, and I picked up on it, and it worked good. And I did this when I lived in Nashville, and I didn't actually really have much money at all. And, and it was just the experience of like being at lunch or being out to eat or somewhere with a friend, and you know the bill comes, the little book comes, you know, and and I would feel maybe a motivation of like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna pay for this person's thing, and immediately after that, I would be like, oh no, I probably shouldn't, you know, they did order an appetizer, and you know, and I start running the list, and now I'm in fear. I'm like, well, I want to be generous, but you know, I only have like a latte, and they had like appetizer and a salad like that's crazy I'm not going to pay for their shit and it's like how long did that take so then now I'm shrinking back I'm kind of shrinking back and it doesn't feel good to shrink back it really doesn't feel good and I used to always just every time I would have that inclination and I still do it to this day I, I don't always but I mostly will follow through right. like I pro- honestly I'm probably too generous like I'm, I'm so like it feels so good that I'll like you know, like, if I'll see something online or I'll see a fundraiser. I'll, like, put, like, 250 or $300 on a credit card before I even think about it. I'm like, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I never regret it. I always feel good about, like, oh, yes, it feels... And I think the generosity practice doesn't really at all... We call it Donna sometimes. And usually Donna, the talk, Donna talk, is, like, giving teachers money at the end of the retreat. That's about the only way it's talked about, which is, like, so shallow. 
but, but, but part of it is like to practice generosity in your life. Practicing generosity, that's not even monetary. That's just giving somebody your attention. You know, being available to somebody when it's inconvenient. You know, somebody calls, somebody's hurting. You're like, okay, it's like, I'm really, really busy and I got a lot of shit to do and I got to fucking take this guy's phone call. <laughs> and doing it. And then on the other side, of the, I never feel bad. Ever. Being generous. I never later on go, mm. I never have any regret. I'll have regret if I don't. Right, so there's generosity, which of course is the antidote to greed. Right? Greed goes like this. It's contracting, it's tight, it's uncomfortable, it's very mine. It's very poverty mentality. It's very uh, not enoughness. Can't. Better not. Won't be okay if. Where the chitta, the mind, the mind really wants to go this way. And so generosity kind of takes us out of all that. And there's a lot of different ways. So part of it is trying to imagine, to think about, to, to what, what is it when your mind is exploring? Does your mind ever do that? Do you, do you play with that? Do you think about that? Well, how ways I can be generous? How can I show up for people? How can I, uh, again, this happiness metric, it's not about getting what I want from the world. It's the quality of mind that I'm bringing to the world. If, can you just imagine the world if everybody was just imagining ways they could be generous? Just ima- I mean, just that alone. If that started to, you know, generosity is not that trendy right now, as you might know. But imagine if that just took on. Imagine if, if, if generosity was as popular as mindfulness. We'd be way better off. Way better off. People imagining, how can, how can I give back? How can I extend? What, what, what resources do I have? It's not always about money. Generosity, kindness. You know, we've been doing that a lot here. Kindness is just like so, um, it just feels good. It's it's attending, it's interest, it's tolerance. It's not needing the other person to agree with all my views and opinions. Trying to make it unconditional. I'll be kind to you, but I need to hear all your social and political views first. And then I will assess whether you are worthy of my kindness. That's going to help nobody. It's going to help nobody. So, 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 so again, like again, a couple of people mentioned it, and I'm glad it was helpful. This removing the subject of just kindness and generosity for the sake of kindness and generosity. Just that alone, and then goodwill, well wishing. Which is again, kindness or generosity helps mitigate the greed. Kindness uh, helps mitigate the aversion. And, and goodwill really mitigates the one that's the most destructive of all, which is ill will, wanting bad things to happen to other people. That's what ill will is, you know, wishing, wishing harm on somebody else because they don't agree with you about some weird random thing about the government. Really? That's the best you can do? And that's really, and so then that, what that breeds emotionally, which is actually the biggest problem, that the most destructive emotion in the system is contempt. 
where we assert, and so contempt destroys everything I'm talking about. When there's contempt, there's no generosity, there's no kindness, there's no goodwill. It's just malevolence and ill will and assuming a kind of moral or superior high ground and devaluing the other person because I have the proper, correct, right opinion, view, whatever. And if, there is a, if, you could, if you could boil down the issues in our society and our culture, it, it could really almost all be boiled down to the emotion of contempt. People think we have a fear problem or an anger problem. We have a contempt. So part of that, and, and so this is really something that we can see in our own minds, and we can, we can let go of this, we can abandon this. We don't want to contribute to our sense. And it's an emotion. It's not something that... The, the thing also to keep in mind is ill will and hatred and contempt and greed, they're not going to go... There's no all gone with that stuff. That's why it's an ongoing practice. Even, it's even said right to the end, the Buddha still, in the figure, of the, they use this figure called Mara, which kind of Mara is this feature of mind which embodies all this stuff. I visited the Buddha all the time. You know, he never, he, he doesn't talk about these things being removed. Their, their, their inertia slows down, their momentum slows down. There's always going to be, I don't care how good your fruit is, there's always going to be some weeds in the garden. Right? And that's okay. Right? We just want to, we just want to get, we want to, we want to cultivate, we want to bring out so that way we're, we're at least 40, 51, 49, and then we're 60, you know. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to drop the ball. You're going to be mean. You're going to be greedy. You're going to be jealous. Those things aren't going to stop happening and they're not bad or wrong. We just, this is why the noting is so good. If I can't recognize it in my own mind, there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. So it's like, you know, this Sayadaw Tejaniya practice is so good. He has this book uh, called Don't Look Down on the Defilements Because They Will Laugh at You. Don't look, don't think you're better than your greed or your hatred or your, your don't, don't do that either. Don't look down on these qualities of mind. You want to see it. You want to see it because you can't do anything about it until you actually do see it. Right? And that's the problem. A lot of people, they don't see any of this stuff in their mind. They're just blinded by it. Right, so it's like almost like, you know, when, uh, there's kind of a joke in the retreat role when somebody goes to the retreat, like, I mean, I hope you have a really hard retreat. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, the last thing you want is to come here for seven days and just have the whole thing be pleasant. That's a total useless waste of time. <laughs> like, how do you feel? Like, great. I just sat there radiating awareness and kindness the whole time in all directions. Right. Like Joseph Goldstein said, I, I hope you get just the right amount of suffering. Like, what's the ratio? Like, you want to have a little bit, you have to have something to work on, right? And so, again, we, we have to posit that kind of getting away from the right, wrong, good, bad. It's just like, so it's, it's more, again, right back to this basic question. We started, what is it that's arising in my experience? Maybe it is jealousy. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's, maybe, it's, maybe it's the ugliest feature of my humanity arising right now in my experience. Right? You want to see it? You want to see it clearly? You want to recognize it? You want to, hello. Hello, self-hatred. I have not seen you in 20 minutes. <laughs> Where have you been? And so again, there's that recognition. That's what mindfulness is. 
fully aware of what it is that's coming up in my experience. And, and then the, the more important and the harder and the transformative work is how am I relating to it? Right? Transforming that experience. Not so it never arises again, but so it's met. Okay. You can come in and you can go. So we talk about letting go. I used to always hate that. I, I rarely say it because I used to hear a lot of IMS in the 90s, let go. And I'd be like at the interview going, guess what? I let go and nothing happened. Fucking <laughs> like letting go one moment after another and not a thing changed. Right? Because the problem was I wasn't letting it in. Vinny Ferrara has this really funny way of talking about it. Like, like in the present moment, we're like the bouncer at the front door of the club, right? And all these like really bad characters are like lurking on the sidewalk and we're like trying to keep them out. And what they're doing, they try, by trying to keep them out, they're torturing you, they're like trying to break into the window. It's, it's, let them in. Let them in, let them go. But that's a lot of times what happens is we don't get that, the letting in part is harder. Or we omit aspects of it where we ignore it. We're, we're like, well, it's not really that. We distort it we don't, because we don't want to admit. We don't want to have that self-honesty of like, well, like, I'm really hating on some people right now in my Buddhist meditation retreat. Okay. <laughs> just sitting here on a sunny day on a Wednesday just hating that son of a bitch one more time. God damn that bitch. I hope they're burning hell. Right? Did you do that? <laughs> Sure you did, right? But there, there, there is a, there's an unwillingness to say, like, no, no, I mean, I would never. It's like, cut it out. And you get nothing out of that. That's just another, that's just now we're just in denial that you're not recognizing, in a, you know, an aversion. So how do I wrap this up? So... Thinking about this practice, this liberation of the chitta, of the heart-mind, through the vehicle of kind of the internal language. Like, so, again, thoughts are not the enemy. Right? They're, 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 the internal language, the internal thinking, that stuff is so important. That's like probably the best fertilizer that you have. So we, we, at some point in our practice, and I think the meditation world doesn't do a very good job of this, we really want to start developing this metacognition. We want to be able to really have a language, an internal language for what's going on here so we can do something about it. And so we can bring up, we can, we can lessen the reactive voice and we can bring out this desire, this well-wishing, this, this, this thing that's sitting at the bottom. You know, what's sitting at the bottom is all the good stuff. So we just really want to, and so sometimes that can be scary or that can be difficult, but that's really, you know, the Buddha said that that's the most beautiful desire of all is Dhamma Chanda, the desire for liberation, the desire for well-being, to be well and to do well. Cultivate that. And so thank you for your kind attention. I offer this for your reflection. We'll just sit for a minute or so. (laughs) 